Well, uh, what a joy it is for me to uh, be here. My name is Eugene, and I get to lead this wonderful church. I call myself a sheepdog. That's what I am, a sheepdog for the great shepherd. Uh, <laughs> hey, um, we are beginning today a brand new sermon series uh, in the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark. And before I uh, dive into this, let me just tell you a little bit about it, where we're going. Uh, as you know, uh, the Gospel of Mark is pretty long, about 16 chapters. And what we're going to do as a church is we're going to take three chapters at a time and dive deeply into it. We'll call that volume one and we'll move on to other sermon series and then we'll come back to it. And hopefully through the year or so, we will be going through the whole book verse by verse. I love preaching verse by verse because there are passages where if you were just to preach topically, you would never ever touch on. <laughs> but going verse by verse, you've got to touch on a lot. And I've been stretched and I pray that you will be stretched likewise. Bring your Bible, bring your pen, and we're going to dive deep and be transformed by the Word of God. Is that a deal? Amen. Hey, a um, little bit about this book. Uh, some have said it is not the most important gospel. That's Matthew. It is not the most thorough gospel. That's Luke. Uh, this is not the most profound gospel. That's John. But this is the first gospel. It's the shortest gospel. And it was the first one that was written chronologically. There's evidence that Matthew and Luke kind of used it to base their accounts and, um, and, and grow. It was written around the eight, uh, year 63 AD. So about 30 years after Jesus. Uh, Mark was not an eyewitness of the resurrection. He was not even a disciple of Jesus. He was a disciple of the disciples of Jesus, namely Peter and Paul. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, I won't show it to you, but Peter writes how he is with Mark. John Mark has, has two names. There's like names were two names and just one name. And he's, this, this uh, gospel is written to Gentiles, most likely in Rome. And there are two reasons why we know this is written to Gentiles and not to Jews. One reason is because it doesn't have a lineage. You know why? Because Romans or people who are disconnected or outside of Judaism would not need lineage. They wouldn't be interested in lineage. The way when you read your Bible and you come across this person begat this person, this person begat this person, to you it's like, can we get over this? You skip that part, do you? Or do you not? Because it's like, this is like, this is really American for an American church. But the second reason we know this is written to Gentiles, because in chapter 7, Mark will explain Jewish customs. Watch this. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed, and then parenthesis, and he explains it. So if you imagine talking about turkey on Thanksgiving, we don't explain what that deal is with the turkey on Thanksgiving to Americans. Now, if you're talking to somebody from Australia or some other country, you're like, hey, yeah, yeah, we like the turkey on Thanksgiving. Here's the reason, 300 years ago, blah, 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 blah. That's what's going on here. He's explaining Jewish customs. So it is written to Christians who are most likely non-Jews, Gentiles. 
the themes of this book, the three themes that I want to touch on over the next three weeks, first is the identity of Jesus. This is the big, big theme of this book. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And here's the thing. The way Mark answers that question is not by necessarily writing about who Jesus is. Mark is filled with action. 40 times, immediately Jesus did this. Jesus did this. Jesus did this. And the reason is, there's a big word for this. It's called enacted Christology. What Mark is doing there is showing us who Jesus is on the basis of his actions and words. So when Jesus takes the unclean spirit out of the man, the conclusion is not, oh man, Jesus is such a nice guy. No, the conclusion is every spiritual being bows to the authority of Jesus. That's who Jesus is. When Jesus heals and forgives the paralytic, the conclusion is not Jesus is compassionate. He is that. But the conclusion is that Jesus is God. It's actions that demonstrate who Jesus is. And in that Gospel of Mark, there's a struggle. Who is he? There are three characters, crowds, leaders, and disciples, and all three get him wrong. The crowds mock him. The disciples abandon him. The leaders arrest him. And the question for us today is, who is Jesus for you? And let me dig a little deeper. Most of us are like, hey, I know who Jesus is. He's God. He's man. He's Messiah, he's Lord, he's king, he's ruler, he has all the authority. What's the big deal? There's a deeper question there. Is on the level of your mind, intellectually, you know Jesus, but does your heart love this Jesus? And does your hand obey this Jesus? Who is Jesus for you? Not just on the level of your mind. Do you love him? Do you care to obey him? Because our lives speak volumes for what we really think Jesus is. Who is Jesus? The second big theme is discipleship. I can't wait for my brother Jason, who's going to touch on this in a couple of weeks. And the reason is because in that time when this was, book was written, there was very, very heavy persecution breaking out against Christians. And Christians were taught how to follow Jesus into suffering and mission. And last, of course, we're going to talk about kingdom of God. So today, we're going to begin with the first eight verses in the gospel of Mark. Now, the Bible is for exposition, not imposition. The Bible is not, it's a one-way port for exportation, not importation. We are challenged and called to be humble and faithful and get the meaning out of the text, not bring to the Bible what we want. And I want to do that faithfully and humbly and invite you to do so. Let me read eight verses. We'll pray and jump in. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I think John would be a social media influencer right now if he was around. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. My sermon title today is Just Give Them Jesus. Would you pray with me? Jesus, having you, we have everything. Would you teach us and help us live missionally to share the news about you with those in our lives? Compel our hearts to do so. May this sermon serve that purpose as we examine the mission of John the Baptist to be inspired to point countless people in our lives to you. In your name we pray and trust. Amen. Um, I don't know how you feel about funerals. Usually uh, it's a tragic situation unless somebody lived 85 years faithfully to, and, and walked into the arms of Jesus. Usually they're tragic, but I, I think funerals, for my soul at least, have been really good. Uh, funerals preach a sermon to you. One of the things that I love to do just to train my heart to realize, wake up, that life is short, is to walk around the cemetery and look at different tombstones and different markings on the grave sites, and, and usually you get two dates and a dash, two dates and a dash, two dates and a dash, and it kind of, you, you wake up, right? You wake up to, wow, this is, life is short. One day it'll be me in there, that all of us will one day pass away. Either Jesus will come or Jesus will call, but our life here on earth will end one day. I remember seeing one tombstone in particular that marked me for the rest of my life. Now, I'm sorry if it's a little dark here, but this is so good for us. I'll never forget. It had like an open letter. It was laying right there, and it had a 12th man flag for Seahawks. And it named this person. It said, thank you for being the best 12th man ever. Now, I don't know what you think. Now, I don't know this individual. But that is not the legacy I want in my life. It brought up for me the question of, well, what do I want to leave here? What do I want to be known for? Because here's the reality. We're all going to go at some point. So what is our life going to be? What are people going to say? More importantly, what are we going to show to heaven up with? Are we the people who had one talent and came with one more? Two talents and brought two more. Five talents and brought five more. There will be a moment in our lives, and this is so serious. This is so, so important, where life stops. And whatever you have, whatever you've done, is it. It's like that cooking show. I don't watch cooking shows. Albina watches them all the time. Where they're cooking, 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 cooking. And then, boom, the timer is off. And everybody picks up their hands like this. They never are allowed to touch back. I mean, that's our lives, church. 
At some point, we throw our hands in the air and that's it. What legacy do you have? Can I encourage you that there is a successful way to live life? There's a worthy way to live life. There's a legacy that is glorious, that is worthy, that is awesome, that is a thousand times better than success and achievements and this American dream. And that legacy, do you know what that is? Is that you and I lived a life where the people that God put on our path, we shared Jesus with them. We gave them Jesus. We pointed them to Jesus. We talked about Jesus. We prayed them to Jesus. We showed them Jesus. We, we, we shared with them Jesus. John the Baptist does that. He is all about Jesus. We're, this is where we're going to end today. Just warning you on this conviction, okay? <laughs> For me, at least. But let's explain this text. Let's look at the mission of Jesus and the purpose of John the Baptist. I'm going to give you four things in this text. I'm going to put them on the screen for you as we dive into this text. The first is we have prophecy fulfilled. Then we have the way made. Then Christ is proclaimed and true change is promised. That's John the Baptist right there. Way made, Christ proclaimed, true change Promise. Let's begin with the first three verses. The prophecy is fulfilled. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then it goes into Isaiah and Malachi, combines it together, and talks about that the prophecy about Jesus is now fulfilled. Well, one thing I love about the, the Old Testament is this idea of the beginning of the gospel does not mean that the gospel like starts with Jesus. It means more like the gospel is now fulfilled, bringing together everything else that's been going on in preparation for Jesus. It is a dawn of a new time. See, everything in the Old Testament, God was weaving together in this masterful story to bring about Jesus. We know that redemption our redemption was not planned at the fall of Eve. Our redemption was planned before the foundations of the earth. That's where it started. Then when Adam and Eve fall, God promises Eve this, that your seed will crush the head of the serpent. That's a gospel promise. And then we have Noah, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have the 12 sons of uh, Israel. Then we have Moses, and God gives a covenant at Mount Sinai. Then we get to the promised land. We have David, and God gives another covenant to David. And the story continues, the story continues, the story continues. And then we have Malachi and the prophets, and Malachi was the last prophet. And now you have the arrival of Jesus. All the preparation fulfilled the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ how incredible that Jesus came you know we lose a lot when we do away with prophecies in the Old Testament we do away with a lot when we say you know what it was a prediction and it was fulfilled you know what I have realized 
is that the way what happens when we are mindful of how God keeps his promises how God promised about this messenger, John the Baptist, and God promises Messiah who will save Israel. When we are mindful of this, this is how we start to trust God. This is how we start to trust God. Sometimes it's really difficult to trust in God with your daily life. Sometimes making that leap, I'm here, sorry, you almost fell, I'm here, Trusting God with my life is here, and we can't seem to make that leap. We can't seem to trust in God until we are mindful of God's faithfulness through ages. Until we are mindful that the universe is his, that history is his, and the stepping stones are paved for us to be just simply able to say, God, the universe is yours, history is yours, you are masterful in the way you weave Old Testament to bring about Jesus, I can trust you with my life. When we are mindful of God's fulfillment of these promises, we gain a heart of trust. We are mindful of God's fulfillment and the fulfillment that God brings about with his promises. This is how we understand the gravity of sin. You realize that the problem of sin in the Old Testament is serious. And there's no button. Like some of, sometimes we think of God in simplistic ways. Like God, couldn't you just like press a button, like make this all go away? And the question is, he didn't, why not? Why did it take thousands of years and promises being made? The reason is because dominion and Satan and sin is that serious. And it took such a story as we have to uproot and kill and destroy sin, Satan, and the grave. That's why we have all these promises and the leading of the story. This is how radical love is portrayed because God is relentless. And so he makes these prophecies, and all these prophecies are fulfilled. And so what we have is with the coming of Jesus and the messenger John the Baptist in the wilderness, we have the beginning of the gospel, the fulfillment of all these streams into one big river that's going to give us eternal life. That's the first part. The second part is we have the way is being prepared. Now watch in verse 4, 5, and 6. John the Baptist is out in the wilderness, and he's supposed to prepare the way, which is a pretty normal thing. I was even surprised to find out, I was just thinking, writing the sermon down, how just a couple months ago you had, the, or a month or two ago, you had Xi Jinping come to Russia. But before he comes to Russia, he sends one of his ministers to kind of prepare everything. Back in a day when a royal king was to come somewhere, the way would be prepared. Somebody would be co- go out there and, and get everybody lined up, make sure the roads are paved and nice, make sure the people are alert and knowing when the time is coming. And John the Baptist is preparing the way for a royal king. But notice how he prepares the way. The way prepared is through the preaching of repentance. What does this mean? This means that the way the kingdom of God is to be greeted is with our hearts turned to him. Repentance. I love that it's in the wilderness. 
This is, I mean, there's a lot of gold here. John the Baptist is in the wilderness. The wilderness stood as a symbol for rebellion and disobedience. Wilderness was always in, for Israel a time of testing God's provision, but also a time of rebellion. Remember in the wilderness, Israelites start to want to go back to Egypt. <laughs> they look back like, oh, we want to go back. We want to go back. In the wilderness, they're worshiping God, seeing these miracles, and all of a sudden they're like, let's worship a golden calf. In the wilderness, they're, they're being fed with manna and water from the rock, and at some point they start to grumble that this isn't good. We want other things. You know what I realized? It's so easy for us to sit there and think, oh man, those Israelites, I would never. I would be so appreciative of God. I would be so trusting in God, except that you know what? From the time we are born again to the time we stand face to face with Jesus, we're so much like Israel. We too sometimes on this journey look back and say, maybe I, I kind of love this world. Maybe I don't want to follow Jesus anymore. Pay this price. We're following Jesus, worshiping him, but then we start worshiping materialism and money. Or maybe we start following Jesus and at some point we start to grumble and not being unhappy with God and his faithfulness, his provision, that it's not enough, that he is not faithful, that he's not answering our prayers. What I love about John the Baptist is he's preaching this message in the wilderness for this sole reason, is that when the people of Judea and Jerusalem are making their trek to the wilderness, they are saying, in fact, I am a rebel. I am disobedient. And they're making this trek for repentance. Repentance means to turn away, turn from or turn towards. And this is water baptism. Now, where did water baptism come from? That's a big question that scholars and commentators have. Why is there water baptism and where did it come from? What we do know is that water baptism was used for non-Jewish communities or Gentiles who wanted to become part of Judaism. They would undergo a washing in the water to signify that they're leaving behind their old and wicked and uh, filthy ways to be now part of the people of God. What is radical at John the Baptist's baptism is it is now for everyone. Everybody is called, Jews and Gentile alike. And what's one more thing I want to show you is that when John the Baptist is in the wilderness and he's preaching about repentance, something remarkable is going on. You see, back in the day, repentance was always connected to the temple. Repentance and the way of forgiveness was through the sacrificial system. You had to go to Jerusalem to be forgiven, and all of a sudden, there is a guy in the wilderness preaching about the forgiveness of sins. And this marks the beginning of a new era, that the forgiveness of our sins is not connected to a temple, physical temple, and sacrificial system, but that our repentance and our forgiveness now is connected to the kingdom and the king who will lay down his life. Amen? So, second, John the Baptist is in the wilderness preparing the way through repentance. The kingdom of God is to be greeted 
with a turning from and a turning towards the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not to be an add-on, but a complete reordering of life. And number three now, Christ is proclaimed. Look at verse seven. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John is pointing us to Jesus. This is so remarkable because did you know that it is estimated that possibly 300,000 people came out to hear John? 300,000 people came out to be baptized. Maybe, I don't know, somewhere like that. And they came and John had such influence. This shake shook the nations. You know, for us, John the Baptist is oftentimes just a footnote. But here, John the Baptist is preaching and thousands are coming to him and he's pointing everybody to Jesus because John the Baptist does this. You ready? He prepares the way and gets out of the way. He highlights that he's a messenger, not the message. Uh, In John, Gospel of John, we read how some of the teachers came to John the Baptist and said, are you the Messiah? Guess what John said? Nope. See, my duty is to point you guys and everybody to Jesus who is. John, in essence, was decreasing. He was ready to give up his influence and use his influence to point as many and everybody to Jesus Which brings me to a point I want to emphasize. If we are on a mission to give them Jesus, we cannot do so without decreasing. There is no witness without a decrease. Oftentimes we are in the way. You can never be strong in your witness if you're not ready to throw in your reputation with Jesus. You realize that? You will never be strong in your witness if your glory, your glory, my glory is at stake. You will never be a witness for Jesus when the approval of man matters more to you than the approval of God. If you and I want to be witnesses, if you and I want to have a mission in the life where we are missionaries to our mission fields, be it ministry, be it work, be it school, be it our homes, be it our neighborhoods, places where we go to gym and our work, if that's our mission field and you and I want to be on a mission to give them Jesus, which we believe is the way you leave a legacy and come to Jesus in his arms in a worthy way, in a meaningful way. If you want to do that, you cannot love yourself. You cannot love your reputation. You cannot love your strategic calculation of how to get up the chain in your corporation. Are you willing to decrease that he may increase? Are you willing to throw your reputation with Christ? Are you willing to use your influence for his sake? We often just want to impress people, please people. And John the Baptist shows us an example of how our witness about Jesus requires our death. Requires our throwing in our reputation with him. John prepares the way 
and gets out of the way. John is a messenger about the message. John is perfectly fine to have a time in his life where he proclaims Jesus and steps back because it's all about Jesus. He doesn't care too much for his influence, but only that he would use it for his sake, which is an example for how we are to live as well. Could we do this? This is the only way to live. This is the only way to be witnesses in our workplaces. And you know this, because we live in a hostile world. Nope, in America, we don't have people loving Christianity anymore who are non-believers. You will rub people the wrong way. But that is our mission and duty. Fourth, is true change is promised. Look at verse 8. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John realizes that his baptism, or I don't know if he realizes, I wouldn't say that, I don't know him, but he's saying here that my baptism is just symbolic. But Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit, which will be true change, which will change you from inside out. Did you know that the only way we can declare Jesus is Lord is by the Spirit? Do you know that when you come to Jesus and put your trust in him, he makes you a new creation? We should never deny that something supernatural is going on in a new birth. The Holy Spirit in us is an indicator and the reason why we are now new. Jesus is bringer of real change. Are you changed? Do you have the Holy Spirit in you? One of the ways we know this, you know, people look at um, maybe some Christian lives, or maybe even their own lives, and they say, I don't see change in my life. So therefore, maybe the Holy Spirit doesn't really change us. Isn't it true how we often revise our theology based on our experience? But what we gotta do, Mercy, <laughs> is once again believe in the supernatural transformation of our hearts where our hearts of stone are removed and our heart surgery is performed and a heart of flesh that loves God, loves his word, wants to follow him, is given to us. That is the promise. The Holy Spirit in us, the change of our lives, the transformation of our hearts, the waking up of our spirits, the res resurrection of our spirits. We should revise the experience and question the genuineness of faith in those who are not genuinely transformed. How, how do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? How do you know if Jesus sent you the Holy Spirit? One of the th ways we know is the Holy Spirit produces life. There are things the Holy Spirit does in our lives that indicate we are well on our way. We're walking the narrow path. We are gods. Gods like belonging to God. One of the ways I think we know we have the Holy Spirit is to look for vital signs. I remember having a, when our, any, any one of our ch children was an infant and sleeping 
in their crib, and at night I would get terrified. And I was always afraid that the child is not breathing at some point, you know, at night. Anybody ever have that? Uh, is it just me? Is it just Google with WebMD teaching you about sudden death, infant death syndrome or something like that? So I would be terrified, and usually I would be like, Albina, check the baby, check the baby, check the baby. And then at some point she says, no, you go check the baby. So I'm fine. She, she's not worried. I was worried, so I would get up, and I would go to this crib, and, I, and I'm telling you, babies do sleep beautifully. They're just like a, a picture of serenity, and they're just like sleeping. And I'm like, well, how do I know if this, my boy is alive? I, I'm sure he is, but I can't touch his pulse. So what I did is I decided to put my finger next to his nose, and, and I would feel his breath. I'd say, ah, oh, he's alive. I'm going to go to sleep. I want to know, do you know how you know you're alive for God? When you love his word. When you love his will. And let me just say this, that, that, that might not even be all the way true because the way you know you love God is are you dissatisfied with how much you love him right now? Do you know the people who love him more, most, are the people who are always unhappy with how much they love him? You know, the people who love his word most are the people who are always unhappy with how much they love his word. You know what I, I want for us? The way you know you're alive for him is you're like, God, give me more love. Give me more passion. Give me more compassion for people. God, I don't care enough about this word. I don't care enough about the neighbors in my life who are not, don't know you. I don't care about your word. I don't care about your honor. Give me more of it. God, give me more passion. Give me more burdens. Give me more love for you. Are you alive for God? Do you love him? And are you dissatisfied with your love? Do you want to love him more? And the indicator of health is appetite. Do you want to know him more? Do you want to love him more? Do you want to read his word more? Do you want to live for his pleasure more? Oh, I pray that Holy Spirit is in you. He's a deposit at the moment of our faith in him. If we could get the keys and we're going to be wrapping up. So John the Baptist's ministry in here is... Break, broken down into four pieces. Prophecy being fulfilled through the prophet Isaiah Malachi. John preaching repentance. John pointing us to Jesus. John pointing us to real life change that comes through Jesus. I think that's pretty good gospel right there. A call to repentance. A call to believe in Jesus and be transformed. John gave them Jesus. My question to you today is do you give Jesus to those around you? I wanted to give you four quick ways, four practical ways for us to give the people in our lives Jesus. First and foremost is we ought to show them Christ. The people around us are looking to us. They're looking to see if we're genuine, if we're real, of Christianity is simply a game. They're looking to see if we have love and truth. If we are able to forgive others. If we're paying the price of following Jesus. Is our lives filled with acts of service? Christians smell like Christ. <laughs> they do. 
They have a fragrance. They give off a fragrance. We are called to be different. If you're not different, you do not show the world Christ. And that is a monumental loss for the world. The world is desperate and needs to see Jesus through your life. So show them with your life. Show them with your forgiveness. Show them with your sacrifice. Show them with your words. Show them with your honor. Show them with diligence at work. Second way to give them Jesus is pray them to Jesus. You want to give somebody Jesus? Intercede on their behalf. Who's on your list? When's the last time you and I prayed for this city? Who is lost that's on our list that we're praying for that they would meet Jesus? Because mercy, if we want to give them Jesus, one way we cannot do without is prayer. Oh, would you pray? Would you make a constant prayer for the people in your life that God has given you? Third is share with them about Jesus. You know, I was talking to one time uh, recently, tried to witness, and I realized my mistake right away. She was giving me a haircut, and I, we started talking about the gospel and Jesus, and I was sharing with her, and she lot, like she gave me too many things to talk about, like Genesis, did Noah's flood really co- cover the whole earth? And I realized my mistake. What I need to do is find a moment in that conversation to punch in the gospel through. Present the pure gospel at some point. Because we do not change hearts, God does. Life change is not something we figure out. Life change is something we ask God to do. Life change is a gift of God. And so what we are required to do is to be faithful and share the gospel. And it doesn't depend on our persuasion. It doesn't depend how good we are. Let's do our best, by the way. But it doesn't depend on that. The power of the gospel is there. So just share about Jesus. You might get lost in all the conversations and questions. And fourth is point them to Jesus. How often when we share great news with people in our lives, we give credit to luck. <laughs> you ever did that? Like somebody says, like, ah, oh, you, you, how did you get this job? Oh, man, I don't know. The algorithm selected my resume. And then I went to this interview, and I, I remember these three questions, and I really prepared, and they actually asked all three questions, and I just got lucky. Are you serious? Make it clear in your life that the source of every blessing is God for everyone. Health, family, job, money, security, whatever it is, the source of every good gift is from above. So point people to Jesus constantly. Or when you are going through hard times, point to people, to Jesus, and share with them how much comfort you have from him, how you love to trust him. See, life will present ample opportunities for us to point others to Jesus. Point others to Jesus. Share with them Jesus. In your ministry, if you're a Sunday school teacher, Give them Jesus. If you play an instrument here like Peter and Eugene and Roman, Sergi over there, your goal is that your music 
will give Jesus to the church. At work, if you're a business leader, give clients, your customers, Jesus. If you're a mom, a stay-at-home mom, and God gave you one, two, three, four arrows, I don't know how many God gave you, the greatest thing you can do is give them Jesus. And in our neighborhoods, and neighborhoods around this school, our mission is to give everyone Jesus. John the Baptist, to me, is my favorite evangelist after studying about him. The way he was so able to decrease that Jesus be glorified. He was so crystal clear on who Jesus is. He was so crystal clear with pointing others to Jesus. Now you might say, Eugene, I can't give Jesus to anyone because I don't even know him. I don't even have Jesus. Well, today is a good day to start. I want to plead with you, persuade you, that the most important thing in your life is to belong to him, amen? And you do so by trusting in him. And when you trust in him, he forgives you your sins. He changes you from inside out, gives you the Holy Spirit, and you're freed to live a life of victory over sin and being of use in the kingdom for his glory. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you came. Lord, we are delighted by the example of John the Baptist that he set for us. Lord, just as the messenger pointed out, pointed to you, may we as Christians live our lives pointing everyone to you, showing them, sharing with them, presenting the gospel to them. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who does not know you, that you would Make yourself known to them. That you would draw their faith, their hearts to yourself and give them life. Give them forgiveness. Adopt them into the family and dress them in robes of righteousness. Lord, we thank you for everything and all that you do. May you be praised. Amen.